Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? My name is Neil Delamere. Dave Moore is my co-host. It's his turn this week to tell me something very interesting about the world and then get an expert in part two to back up his shenanigans. <laughs> That's a good way of describing it. You can get in touch with us if you have shenanigans and you think to yourself, the lads might like this as a topic. Uh, we are on Instagram. We're at Why Would You Tell Me That is the podcast name. And then individually, you'll find Neil at, at Neil Delamere Comedy and I'm at Dave Today FM. Uh, and jump in, say hello, and then let us know what you think of the podcast and also let us know if you have any ideas. The other thing you should do is whatever way you're listening to this, uh, whatever player it is, and they have some kind of a plus or a follow or a subscribe, do that because that way you will never miss an episode. You'll never miss out on when the season is coming back. Any special things we do in between seasons, all that good stuff is there. So make yes. sure you're followed, you're subscribed, you're doing all those things and that uh, you won't miss a bit of why would you tell me that subscribe and follow and like and there is one podcast platform that required you to send a drop of your blood away that wasn't right <laughs> and we do not condone that but mm. we would like you to do all the other stuff and we are proudly part of the ACAST creator network now anyone who did send their blood just know that I'm wearing it in a vial around my neck Ooh. and every now and again I just open up the little vial and I have a sniff and I Sniff your platelets and then I just get on with things. You know, it's going he, in, the, it's going to a good home. He's a platelet sliffer. That's that's basically you, your drop of blood is on a little uh, in a little vial. And um, if he drives his car around a roundabout too quickly and your blood separates into its component parts, then his wife drives home. Yeah, that's that's how it's that's done, the isn't test. It? Yeah, if that's... you've gone full centrifuge, she takes the car off you. <laughs> How very Angelina Jolie, Billy Bob Thornton of you. Whatever I need to do to be sustained in this cruel world yes. in which we live, Neil. And if that is requires podcast listeners' platelets uh, hung around my neck in some <laughs> kind of centrifugal weirdness, then I'm I'm here for that. I really for am. Our, for our non-Irish listeners, yeah, sure he's wearing blood. For our Irish listeners, he's he's actually walking around with cocktail sausages. <laughs> I, he basically, do you know, in those old films where the Mexican bandit would have uh, the bullets oh, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in a bullet belt yeah. across his, like in an X, that except cocktail sauce. <laughs> Dave Moore, let's stop talking nonsense completely. Oh, I don't think we're ever going to do Unrelated nonsense. Okay. You're leading this one. What do you got? It's your oh, turn. What do I got? I've got an amazing story for you. What I'm going to do in part two is I'm going to tell you that one of the biggest companies in the world Mm-hmm. was five weeks away from becoming non-existent and it took one man whose name is Tinker to save it. No way. Tinker saved one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the coolest brands in the world. Is this a law firm? No, it's not a law firm. Tinker t- Taylor Soldier Spy, that well-known <laughs> law firm. No, it's we, not that. Okay, I'm and, into and this now. It's, a, it's such a cool brand. And it was saved in a weird way by an even cooler brand and Tinker. Oh, this story is great. We'll get to this in part two. I've got a one on called Joe Pompliano, who is an absolute beast on Twitter. This man churns out Twitter threads like there's no tomorrow. He is so obsessed with the world of business, but particularly the world of business of sport. We'll get to 
the story he's going to tell us. But he's got so many stories we want to mine him for. But it's going to be great. I'm dying to talk to Joe. My brain is now already ticking away. Five weeks, 35 odd days from going under. And now it's a multi-billion, billion, billion, a billion. Multi-billion. I mean, okay. ubiquitous. If, you, okay. if, you, if I asked you to name the top five most recognizable brands in the world, I think you'd probably put this one in there. Oh, Bord Nimona, um, Pat the Baker, um, um, Sidona, Premier Dairies, uh, Kerry Gold, and uh, uh, Wavin. <laughs> is it Wavin? Have you not. got the man who invented Wavin piping? But I'll tell you what, though, if you go to YouTube, the great thing about this is it doesn't matter what country you live in, wherever you listen to this, go to YouTube and type in Wavin Dennis Hickey. <laughs> to those of you who aren't Irish or maybe English, Scottish or Welsh, Dennis Hickey would mean nothing to you. He is a former Irish rugby player. He's a winger, for, very good winger. A very yeah. good winger. But for some reason, he did a, a collab in the days before collabs were a thing with Wavin Pipes. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> please go and let's let's get the numbers of views on, on the Wavin thing up. And for some reason, in, in the next meeting, the marketing team of Wavin will go, lads, I don't know what happened, but we've had a little lift in our views of the Dennis Hickey ad from 1994 or whenever it was. Do you not remember that um, they tried to replace the ancient ash-based hurls, hurley sticks, mm. that are synonymous with the great game of hurling, which is mentioned in basically from millennia ago with Wavin hurls. Do you not remember And this? they didn't. They no. did. And you basically, I'm probably denigrating Wavin, I, I apologise, but you'd hit it off it. And the the shockwave would move up your hand in a way that would shatter every single small bone in your body. <laughs> Tibia's shattering all over yeah, the yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bone is yeah. dislocating. Yeah, yeah. Basically, your your kneecap would shoot off like a bony frisbee. <laughs> Actually, do you know something I learned recently? I just yeah. said the word ulna and it reminded me. Do you know why the funny bone is so sore when you bash your funny bone? It's a nerve that goes into yes. your elbow. So it's the ulnar nerve, which yeah. is at the, the, the junction of the ulna where it joins to insert other bone here that I can't remember the name of. But yeah, so in between the two is a nerve. And so when you bash off it, the two bones go and they pinch your nerve. And that's why it's instantaneously agony. And then after a second, it's like, oh, that was okay, actually. Let me introduce you to a couple of things here in part one before we get to Joe Pompliano and part two. Joe is going to tell us about an incredible business decision that as i said led to the saving of a huge brand a very important brand to most people today i'm going to tell you about the best business decisions i'm going to start off with henry ford okay okay and a lot of people would think henry ford's best business decision was the factory line because he created this regimented tight working day where you would go in and do one job and you're part of an assembly line and the assembly line revolutionized not only car production, but everything else. Uh -uh. That actually had a really negative effect for Henry Ford. So when workers came in and found out that their job was to put a couple of rivets in a door and then the door would move on to the next person and they put a couple of rivets in the door and then move on. And they go, they go oh, hang on, this is all I'm doing. I thought I was here to build a car. No, yeah. you're here to rivet a door. Labor turnover that he had was huge. Right, absolutely huge. So, and it was eating into his productivity because he couldn't get staff. So what he decided to do was genius. He doubled their wages. Really? So what he decided to do, exactly. He used to pay them $5. And then he decided, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pay them $10, okay? And so by paying them $10, he was able to not only appease them from their boredom, but he created the middle class that needed to buy cars. On the $5 wage, they weren't rich enough to buy a Model T. But on the $10 wage, they could buy their house, they could live and buy their groceries, and they could buy a Model T. So he was paying the people who would then go on and buy his cars. Absolutely. Is that not what caused BSE? Is, is, is that not feeding cattle other bits of no. other cattle? Did no. that not cause BSE? No, no. He also reduced the price because the productivity went up. Because labor, listen to this, labor turnover fell from 370% to 16% within one year. So basically people, 
used to more people used to leave the job almost four times more people used to leave the job than he could hire and then within the space of a year of paying them double that completely flipped and he only had a labor turnover of 16 percent. so productivity shot through the roof and he was able to reduce the price of the model t by more than half from 800 dollars to 350 dollars and that meant that his staff could walk out the door at the end of the year and go you know what honey i'm gonna buy myself one of those model t's i river the doors on I'm sick of driving this old jalopy around the place. We need a brand new car if we're going to go to California to to get our fortune. And the thing is, not only did it make Ford, the brand, the world's greatest automaker at the time, it made Henry a billionaire. A billionaire what year? 1914. 1915, 1916. So he basically could have waged war against any of the countries in the First World War on his own, probably. 100% he could if he wanted Thankfully, he was a peace-loving dude and that wasn't his, part of his plan. But yeah, he could totally have done Although, that. didn't we mention he was uh, he was mentioned by name in Mein Kampf? So I don't know if he was the nicest dude in his personal life. No, Hitler maybe not. actually mentioned him by name. That is incredible. And I suppose only somebody with his um, political, shall we say, within the company's oomph would go, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to double the wages. I am right on this. Because nobody else would allow that unless he was the boss of bosses. Precisely. Here's the thing. Other companies who treat their employees well do so much better than the companies who try and eke out that little extra percentage and reduce this and change that and change this benefit. And they think that they're they're doing themselves a favor. Walmart, as we know, is one of the biggest companies. I think it's worth half a trillion dollars or it does half a trillion dollars of revenue annually. Like, that's such a ridiculous amount of money. Sam Walton is the CEO and founder of Walmart, Walton Walmart. And what he started to do was on Saturday mornings, he called meetings and all employees would gather at the headquarters early on a Saturday morning. They would discuss what was selling in their little, don't forget, this was when they had a few stores. They okay. would discuss what was selling, what wasn't, any problems they had, and any good news that had cropped up during the week. This continues today. On Saturday, there is still a Saturday morning Walmart meeting. Now, I'm not 100% sure if the Walmart meeting is individual to the store. I think it is, as opposed to there being a huge, I mean, they have 10,000 plus stores. I doubt they're all getting together in one massive Zoom call. But what it does is it makes the employees feel absolutely part of the company. They can air any problems they have. They can feel like they're part of of a family. And it gets to the core of problems and they laser focus on what's important for that particular branch. So maybe you're living in a place where the most important thing you sell are canoes and kayaks. But then the one 35 miles away sells shoes and clothes more than it sells. So it allows that store to to go to HQ and go, do you know what? I need more, a bigger kayak display. I need, that's going to make our customers happy. What, you don't want a bigger kayak display? <laughs> no, I just, I just love that, that that's the first thing that came to your head. Have you been in Decathlon in Dublin? Is that what this is? Have you been in a Walmart? It literally, like, it literally goes from, yeah, bags of sweets, kayaks, ooh, and obviously it's America, guns. Guns. And, like, it is crazy, the stuff they sell. But each one is tailored individually to its location. No, that's a very good idea. It does strike me that that good news thing does strike me as in very American, optimistic, joyful sort of a thing. Mm. I think if you were in Dublin and I was like, all right, everybody's coming in Saturday morning to tell the good news. <laughs> like, I think you would be told <laughs> to fuck right off. I think that's what would happen there. Any good news there, John? Yeah, great news. The husband's leg is in the post there. I think he'd be able to walk again, be Tuesday. Yeah, he got a new leg, but he got it from Ikea, so he's left bits over and he has to pull it together himself. He's three screws left over. I says to him he's going to fall down the stairs, but he won't listen to me. What happened was he bumped his ulna and his humerus off the wall there and he got a bit of a, a bit of a tingle <laughs> in his elbow and we all laughed. But we couldn't find the, the rest of it for ages. So, But that's my good news anyway, I think it would be. <laughs> but then also there are companies who pay you to DOS. And again, I don't know if the word DOS translates around the world, but basically to daydream, to have fun. Samsung do a thing which is actually really cool. They don't necessarily pay you to daydream, but what they do is they pay their best young hopefuls, they pay them to go away and not work. They go, go to the far corners of the earth, 
Yeah. Obviously, Samsung, Pacific Rim, South Korean company. They say, okay, like, you're Jungkook, you're really good, you're really bright, we think you get to the top, go live in Germany for a year. Just immerse right. yourself in the culture, learn about Germany, learn about their people. Uh, your brother is going to Brazil and your sister is heading to Canada. Just go and come back fluent in whatever language you speak there and tell us about the, the, the culture and what they might like to buy. And what they might... and it has served Samsung so well. This is what they've done for generations in that company. I just have an idea now of somebody from Samsung listening to this. He's 25, but he lives in Seoul. <laughs> So basically, he's thinking, all oh, right, that's what they're thinking of me. Is just, I'm, I'm still living beside the factory. They clearly think I'm a total gobshite. Yeah, I'm afraid my, it is the brightest young employees. Who yeah, get my, my brother's living on top of a skyscraper in New York studying stuff. And I'm going in here every day listening to K-pop. That's an amazing idea because that is how trade basically uh, uh, flourishes, is you just mix ideas. Yeah, would well, you remember David McWilliams told us in season one, that um, Peter the Great went to Amsterdam dressed as a Russian carpenter to learn how the Dutch thought, learn how they did business, because it was the most banking-wise, finance-wise, trade-wise, it was the most forward-thinking nation on earth. And he went there, instead of going, hello, I'm a Russian Tsar, I need to learn all of this, he just went, no, I'm going to go over here, sneaky emperor, under the radar, learn everything, head back to Russia, and then he built St. Petersburg. There's a lot of accents in this one, isn't there? Yeah, wait till I start doing my South Korean. <laughs> no, I'd like to do more podcasts. Thanks a million. Okay, I'd like fair, to do fair. Lo- loads more. You don't podcasts. want to be cancelled, no? No, no. I, okay. I did quite like him go. Hello, I am not the Russian czar. He, he, but that, so he had to go. He was going from Petersburg, which he had not built yet. He was going all the way across, and then he was getting to Amsterdam, and he said, "I would like a ham and cheese toasty." So that. <laughs> Well, actually, the Dutch Dutch still do something amazing, which is they send retired executives around the world to do a similar thing than Samsung. But the government does it. The government pays retired executives, go live in France, go live in South Korea, go live in wherever. And then when you come back, bring your knowledge and everything back to the mothership. Away you go. Big fan of the Dutch since uh, I did a gig there and was telling them uh, a secret. I can't remember what the secret was. And my Dutch friend went, ah, now the monkey comes out of your sleeve. What? (laughs) That's incredible. It's what you say in Dutch, but she had directly translated it into English. Brilliant. fantastic. Brilliant. Um, And the last business decision I want to tell you about today is not dissimilar to Henry Ford, but there's a there's a, an Indian steel company called Tata Steel. If you've ever heard of them, they're yes, actually have heard of company. them. Yeah, right. So Tata Steel at one point had eighty thousand employees, okay. and the CEO came in and he went, "We need to let half of our staff go." Right, and the lads around him were like forty thousand people. He's like, "Yeah, well." Like, we literally will decimate an entire subcontinent if we do that. Like, the the employment we give and the kind of the knock-on of positive effects of having these jobs, if we let 40,000 people go, it's going to affect 40,000 families. That could be 200,000 people, whatever. So he said, yeah, yeah. So I have an idea. Hunger Games. <laughs> not quite, not quite okay. that. Okay, okay, okay. Slightly, slightly sounder than Hunger Games. He said, if you're over 55, just walk out the door and we will pay you your salary until you, the retirement age of 61. You don't have to work another day. Just off you go. If you're 45 to 55, walk out the door and we will pay you 1.2 to 1.5 times your salary until you're 61. And if you're below 45 and you think you'd like to take this, what they call an early separation scheme, ESS, we will pay you one and a half times your salary for every year that you until you reach 61 and if for some terrible reason you die before you're 61 your family will still receive the full payment until retirement date that is the strangest and probably most successful reduction of employees did it it probably went amazingly well did it so as you get younger you get more salary more you get more salary now think about it okay the most amount of salary they're paying is 1.5 times yeah. what the current salary is. So right, what does okay. that do? Inflation. That actually, course, yeah. yeah, that freezes salaries for yeah. everyone who wants. Yes, the people who stay in the company 
inflation comes in, uh, you know, better working conditions, uh, market parameters, everything all of a sudden changes their salaries. Their salaries going up twice, three times, four times. That's the existing people who stayed in the company. Those who left are on a fixed amount of money. The company can budget for that amount of money. It can understand that amount of money. And the most they will have to pay out is one and a half times for somebody who's, let's say somebody was 30 and they're working until they're 61. So for 31 years, they will have a a 1.5x salary. If that person stayed in the job for 31 years, I guarantee you by the time they retired, it would be 10x, 15x, 20x, whatever it would be. And presumably you could work for another company. You, you didn't have to not work. You just had to, you just had to take your, your salary. That was literally all you had to do. So they went from 80,000 to 40,000 of the happiest employees. Because not only did the employees who left, they feel like they were getting a good deal, which in some ways they were. They didn't have to work. They were getting paid. But the other employees didn't feel like anybody was shafted. And it had a massive morale boost. And obviously made Tata really productive. Obviously, when they trimmed the workforce down by 40,000, they were able to be much more productive and they got richer and richer and richer and richer. Wow. I like that you're used to the word trimmed the workforce when you cut something in two. <laughs> just gonna tr- I'm just going to tree- trim my leg hair. Dave, you've amputated your left limb. <laughs> That's incredible. But so, but if you were young and you know, you're 30 or 35, you could actually take one and a half times the salary for the rest of your days and work on another job. Hundred percent. I mean, like it was a it was a win win, and the 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 best thing about it was that be, although it seemed like it would be, I mean, the, your first reaction was what everyone's first reaction is, which is this is counterintuitive. Why the hell are you paying people not to work? But you're paying them a fixed rate, so it meant that everybody was able to, as you said, take the money if they wanted. That was a good salary at the time. They could just do that and live off that. And as as inflation went up, they might okay. Well, now I have to get another job, or now I yeah, have to do yeah, this or yeah, yeah. that. But if you were driven. You were motivated and you wanted to go out and get a job that paid you six times what you were earning in Tata or 10 times. You still had your your kind of cushion of Tata salary coming in from the time you left until you were 61 years old. Tata, Tata, Tata. Seriously sound. So they're all damn fine business decisions. I think you'll agree. Oh, yeah. I mean, if somebody wants to pay me and you one and a half times uh, our salaries that we get for this podcast to not make this podcast, I mean, I would certainly be up for having the discussion anyway. Yeah, I mean, 15 quid an episode, like, I would jump at that. (laughs) I would jump at that, my friend. You're getting paid for this. (laughs) Yeah, a tenner. What are you not getting a tenner? (laughs) Okay, look, in part two, we're going to speak to Joe Pompliano who is the founder of Pomp Investments and who is going to tell us this incredible story, Neil, about one of the world's most iconic brands saved in five weeks by a man called Tinker. That's all on the way in part two. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, so welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? With me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere. And our guest joins us now. He is the founder of Pomp Investments. His name is Joe Pompliano. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to do it. I have told Neil that one of the world's most iconic brands was about five weeks away from, I guess, losing maybe one of the most important assets it had and therefore maybe running into ruin. But one man called Tinker save the day so can you bring us the story of what because neil doesn't even know what brand this is yeah he's kept it deliberately vague all right well can i spoil the brand first or do i uh, spoil everything the the brand is nike so uh, a small a a small uh sportswear uh manufacturing design company that you guys might have heard of (laughs) yes Uh, mom and pop store yeah just a mom and pop store uh, about 165 billion dollar company today (laughs) but uh (laughs) A lot of this, yeah, a lot of this goes back in the early days. So Nike was obviously famous for their, they got their start mostly in, in track and field uh, out of Oregon and stuff like that. And they, they used athletes really is what they did uh, to promote a lot of their products, right? So they were early on when it came to using some of these uh, athlete endorsements. And the most famous one that they developed over time, which is probably the most famous one in sports, I would argue, is with Michael Jordan mm-hmm. and the Jordan brand. So as much as that started out as uh, just a partnership, right? He used their shoes. They had the Nike logo. He helped market them and he was paid a fee for that traditional marketing deal. It's evolved over time. And the Jordan brand is now a subsidiary of Nike. And they do, uh, this year was actually the first time they crossed $5 billion in annual sales. $5 billion. Yeah. Ma- massive business now, uh, even in the context of Nike, right? Like if you just spun yeah. the Jordan brand out, it would still be one of the world's largest sportswear companies. Uh, <laughs> and it's underneath Nike, right? It's uh, someone argued not even their main focus. So I think it's probably one of the most impressive IP deals really for an athlete in sports history. Yeah. I mean, like I, I'm a huge sneakerhead. I'm a huge Nike fan. I'm a huge Jordan fan. I mean, this, this t-shirt is Actually, genuinely coincidental today that I'm wearing a Jordan t-shirt, but that's actually not because I'd say about 90% of my t-shirts have the Jordan Jumpman logo on them. Um, But it's one of those things where it has transcended, like if you think about an athlete inking some kind of a deal with a sports brand and then being retired for five years and go, well, who wants, you know, a pair of football boots worn by Alessandro Nesta. Like the guy doesn't play football anymore. Michael Jordan hasn't played basketball since like the nineties, but like it is literally one of the most iconic brands existing in sport today. Like you said. So, so we're going to get to some of the numbers because the numbers that uh, go into the deal today and the size of that are insanely impressive, even relative to context of guys that are still playing like LeBron Mm. James, Kevin Durant, right? All of the top NBA players that you would think of today his deal dwarfs wow. those guys, right? So, uh, but the, the the main story here, right, is that Nike had released uh, the Air Jordan One, and everything was going well. I think most people understand now that uh, the story was that Michael Jordan didn't actually want to wear Nike coming out of school. He had worn Converse in college. Uh, Dean Smith, who was the coach at UNC, was actually being paid. I think it was ten thousand dollars a year to have all of his players wear Converse. Mm. He came out of college and he wanted to wear Adidas. Adidas was going through some transition at a leadership level. Ended up not even actually making him an offer. Converse uh, made him an offer. They had some of the other big names at the time, made him a very similar offer to what they were offering kind of the top players in the NBA. Uh, And they said, you know, we're going to treat you just like these other guys, like, uh, you know, all all the top players. And where they meant that as a compliment, it was actually a negative to Michael Jordan, of course, where he wanted to be seen as, uh, you know, this this all-star player, bigger than life kind of personality, even though he hadn't played an NBA game yet. Um, so he ends up signing with Nike, long story short, right? And he, uh, his mom was the one that convinced him to go take the meeting. They give him the sales pitch. He signs the deal with Nike. 
they were expecting him to do, you know, a minimal amount of sales with the first shoe that they released. They ended up doing over a hundred million dollars in sales, uh, massive, massive, massive success. They do that, uh, again, right? So they have the Air Jordan one, Air Jordan two, the partnership is going great. Everything is fantastic. And this is where Tinker Hatfield comes in. So okay. Tinker Hatfield, for people that don't know, uh, he was an Oregon athlete under Bill Bowerman, who was, I, I believe, even recognized as a co-founder of Nike. And he graduated uh, in the early 80s, I think it was 81 maybe, uh, from Oregon and he with a degree in uh, architecture. And he started his career at Nike, so he got a job out of college at Nike. And he was designing stores, retail stores and office buildings for Nike. So true architect, right? Nothing yeah. to do with shoes, nothing to do with clothing. He was, he was literally designing the stores uh, that Nike was using. In the mid 80s though, Nike started to run into some trouble. They, uh, their stock was declining by about 50% over a couple of years. Uh, Converse and, and Reebok were stealing athletes and stealing market share and were making big inroads. Uh, Nike was firing employees. It was basically the first time in history that their business had started to falter. So uh, they ran an internal competition and the internal competition was a design competition. Anyone could enter and you basically had 24 or 48 hours, whatever it was to design a shoe. Uh, Tinker Hatfield designed a shoe wins the competition and then moves to the design team. And he's like, yeah, like I kind of wanted to do it, but they just told me the next day, like you're now on the design team. Wow. <laughs> do we know the shoe he designed and did it, did it ever get released? What that first one was? I don't think so. No, I've never okay. heard, I've never heard what actually won the competition. Right. Um, but two years after that, funny enough, he was given his first project, which is, was a shoe called the Air Max One. Uh, <laughs> now, to you and me, Joe, like, I mean, I'm a sneakerhead. Look, yeah. the Air Max One is such an iconic sneaker. But to Neil yeah. and maybe some people listening, they might just go, the what? Like, if you just Google Air Max One, you'll go, all oh, right, that shoe. Was that the one with the bubble? Yeah, I think yep. it was the first one with the bubble, Joe, right? Yeah, it was the first one with the bubble. And he was actually told, so there's a building, I'm blanking on the name right now. There's a building in Paris that he had gone to visit. And basically it's this structure where uh, like a traditional building, they got the bricks, they got the sides, everything. It looks kind of neat and clean. This building was like all the piping, right? And he was like, that's sick. You know, you can see the inside, you see the guts of it. It's the George Pompidou Center. That's what it is in Paris. Yeah, with, with all the, the air movement. conditioning and everything. Out, Yes, exactly. And it's all outside. You, yep. As Joe said, you see everything that should be in the building outside the building. Nah, he saw a cross between a sneaker and a spirit level and then re-engineered <laughs> and said, oh, it was in Paris. That's what I actually saw. But one way or the other, he designed this iconic shoe. Yeah. He, so he designs the Air Max one. Uh, Nike executives actually reportedly hated it. They thought it was a terrible idea. Wow. Uh, no one had ever done uh, revealing kind of the base of the shoe. They thought it made it look cheap. They thought everyone thought it was going to break. Uh, shoes gets released anyway. Sales explode. He becomes like, you know, this, this internal figure that is obviously important in Nike. Mm. So again, fast forward uh, another year or two now. And there's these two guys, uh, Rob Strasser and Peter Moore. Uh, Rob was the vice president at Nike at the time and Peter had designed, he was the lead designer for the Air Jordan one and the Air Jordan two. So he had designed the previous two shoes for Michael Jordan and they both abruptly leave, uh, Nike in 1987. Mm. There's some kind of, uh, uh, nuance to this. Essentially what they did was they started a consulting company that consulted with other brands and how to launch products. But then at some point they launched another company, a shoe wear company, uh, called Van Grack. And their plan was uh, to lure Michael Jordan to Van Grack. And they had the relationship with him, obviously. And not only did they have the relationship with him, uh, but Nike was planning to meet with Michael Jordan. They had a meeting scheduled, I think it was in four or five weeks, just over a month, basically, to show him the Air Jordan 3, the next year's uh, shoe. And when they left, Peter Moore took all of the designs. Right. So oh. he intentionally, obviously, uh, spited Nike and said, you know, now you guys have nothing. We're leaving. We're going to go try to get Michael Jordan. We have a relationship with him. And now they so, have five weeks to to turn this around. Five weeks. Yep. And uh, so that's where Tinker comes in. They call Tinker up and they say, hey, man, we need some help here, uh, obviously. So Tinker flies out to meet with Michael Jordan, sits down with him uh, and basically says, hey, man, like, let me help you. Like, what do you want in a shoe? And that's probably somewhat more common today. Maybe not even really, right? Like uh, I know Kyrie Irving has been uh, vocal in the past of not having the ability to help with the design of the shoe, but like some athletes probably have that relationship where they can at least help or dictate kind of the overall direction. Mm. But back then that wasn't how it happened at all, right? So they flew out to him, uh, Tinker met with him. They ended up uh, settling on basically he wanted uh, like a, basically like a mid shoe with some, uh, uh, 
exotic print leather, he called it, right? So Tinker goes back, he has five weeks, he goes and he designs the shoe. Uh, again, long story short, they fly in to go to California to go meet with Michael Jordan. He shows up to the meeting like three or four hours late, right? And when he shows up, they're like, you know, what were you doing? <laughs> Turns out he was playing golf with Strasser and Moore. Oh. And they pitched him on this whole uh, this whole idea that he should come join Van Grack. He can be the face of the brand. They'll build this whole collection around him. It'll be his company, basically. Now, we, we should probably like, because in hindsight, I think people, as you explained at the start, we're talking about, you know, Jordan doing $5 billion in 2020, whatever it was. Uh, you know, Nike being the ubiquitous brand that is. 165 billion whatever it's worth now this was not the case at the time you it might seem odd that somebody like michael jordan would be tempted to go to a new startup van grack it even sounds like a terrible name for a sports brand but 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 at the time he wasn't really feeling nike was he like i mean he he i mean the, the sales of one were great two was okay but i mean it was make or break time for for jordan at this point with nike yeah, totally. And Nike was starting to falter, right? What we spoke about earlier with uh, not only the stock price, but but Reebok was uh, very popular at the time and was gaining a lot of market share. And Nike was firing employees. So if you're an athlete uh, that is with this brand that is relatively new at this point, right? They're obviously a major player in the space and we're throwing a lot of money and we're offering him a deal relative uh, that probably wasn't comparable to what other people were doing at first. Mm-hmm. You start to second guess it, right? And say, okay, you know, maybe it was me that was selling all those shoes. Maybe it wasn't Nike. Maybe it was me. You know, I'm a great basketball player. I could probably do that somewhere else. Maybe I'll get a better deal. Maybe they'll pay me X more, right? So that was certainly part of it. And it wasn't nearly as obvious as it is today. But the turning point was this meeting because the genius of Tinker Hatfield was that uh, not only did he design the exact shoe basically that Michael Jordan wanted, probably even better. But the part that people don't realize is up until that point, all of the shoes had the Nike logo on it, right? The check. During this meeting, he shows him the Air Jordan 3, and it had the Jumpman logo on it for the first time ever. And Michael Jordan not only did not know that wasn't happening, uh, Phil Knight did not know that was happening. Oh, so, so Phil Knight, who owns Nike, did not know there would be no Nike swoosh on the Jordan 3. Yeah. So uh, the, the the rumor <laughs> is that Tinker Hatfield had basically floated it around a little bit beforehand and was explicitly told like, no. Of course. <laughs> and, yeah. They're like, dude, that's our logo. <laughs> like it's gotta be on the shoe. And, uh, and so he shows up to the meeting and the shoe has, uh, it's got the print on the side. Everyone knows the shoe today, I think, but it's got the Jumpman logo right on the tongue of the shoe. And it was the first time that it had ever been seen. And Jordan's like, holy shit, dude, this is awesome. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so he shows him the shoe. He's like, this is great. Uh, and again, not only did he have that, which was like the big surprise, but he had also sketched out and designed an entire apparel collection with the same logo and basically pitched him on what Van Grack was doing, but doing it with Nike instead and showing, hey, we can do the shoes. We can create your own line. We can do the merchandise. We can do the apparel. It's going to look this good. You know, Everything that basically every other company wanted to do with him. And Nike just said, we can do it better. Yeah. And the rest is basically history, right? Like he he ends up staying with Nike. The shoe sales continue to explode. They built this brand. And I think the most interesting part of the story is like, not only Tinker Hatfield doesn't get enough credit, Phil Knight actually says that Tinker Hatfield saved Nike, right? He just says, look, yeah. we were through a really dark period. Michael Jordan was obviously a huge part of the business going forward, and it wouldn't happen without what Tinker did. But they roll out the sales. Michael Jordan does the free throw line dunk in the dunk contest. We should paint this picture because, again, Joe, I'm a sneakerhead. I remember this iconic moment. But basically, Michael Jordan ran up in a dunk contest. And from the free throw line, he leapt from there. And if you've ever stood on a basketball court, that is quite a distance. And he ended up in the shape of the jump man. You know what I mean? With his legs wide, his hand up with the basketball in it, and dunked in this. And this iconic thing happened. And on his feet were the Air Jordan 3s. And like, as you said, the rest is history. I mean, that just solidified everything. Obviously, he went on the run with the Bulls. They did the three-peat. He came back to the second three-peat. Like, you know, and every shoe he wore, I own all of them. (laughs) They're all like, (laughs) you know, they're just, they're so iconic. And it's so easy to look back in history now and kind of go, yeah, of course. But no, at the time, if Tinker wasn't there, if Tinker didn't do what Michael wanted, but also exceed what Michael wanted, who knows what would have happened? It does feel like one of those situations where it is easier to ask, this, and this is what Tinker thought, it is easier to ask forgiveness than permission because mm. he obviously floated the idea and went, no, I'm right. Can I ask uh, what happened to Van Grack? 
given that we haven't heard of them and they're not listed on the stock exchange anywhere, Joe, I'm assuming they didn't go as well as Nike has done since then. Certainly not as well as Nike. They actually, I think, made a shoe. Uh, if you Google like Van Grack shoes, I'm sure you can find one of the models early on. Uh, but yeah, they went nowhere. I don't even know if they lasted a year. It was basically uh, irrelevant as as quickly as uh, it came up. Within a year or two, they shut down basically their consulting company or they actually like merged with Adidas or somehow and uh, started working at Adidas. So they, they obviously weren't looked highly upon at Nike anymore, leaving with the designs, <laughs> trying to create a competitor and then going to a competitor. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Also, the word, it wasn't even worth stealing those designs. Given what Tinker came up with, they should have yeah. just left the designs there. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Michael, Michael probably wouldn't have agreed to those designs, you know, because he wasn't feeling Nike at the time. So they probably would have come up with them. It would have had a big Nike swoosh on it and he would have gone, yeah, you know, maybe I'll try something else. You mentioned the stock price falling from say 84 to 88 or whatever that that period was when all of this was happening and uh, it wasn't really going particularly well. And it was like, I think if people invested in the early 80s, they were like 50% down by the late 80s. Between the late 80s and like 2020, what kind of percentage rise would you see if you owned a Nike stock or 100 Nike stocks or whatever? I mean, are you talking like- Over (laughs) 40,000%. 40,000%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can't we can't attribute all of that to Jordan, but he is such an integral part of the brand story. Well, and the most fascinating part about it is uh, certainly stockholders and equity holders of Nike have done tremendously well, uh, early ones at least, uh, given given kind of the climate that they've experienced since. But Jordan has benefited uh, immensely, obviously, right? So he had a royalty deal that was established with uh, Nike, and um, he makes now. Uh, much more money than he ever did in his entire NBA career on an annual basis just through Nike. So Nike alone through their partnership has paid him over a billion dollars. And there's there's some kind of uh, speculation about the true value of his royalty deal. It's it's rumored that maybe he gets a certain percentage for shoes versus a certain percentage for merchandise and vice versa, right? Basically, if you had to estimate, you could comfortably say it's north of 150 million. It's probably north of 200 million annually now with them doing uh, uh, $5 billion in sales. So an incredible, incredible amount. And to put that into context, if he makes 150 to $200 million off his deal with Nike, uh, LeBron James signed a lifetime deal with Nike recently. But before that, he was earning about $32 million from Nike. Kevin Durant earns about uh, 25 to $30 million from Nike. Steph Curry earns anywhere uh, a little bit north of $20 million from Under Armour. And Kobe Bryant was earning about $16 million from, from Nike, right? So current players. Yeah, current yeah. players, right? So people that... People that are uh, at the top of the game today or as relevant as ever. And this is a guy that retired, you know, 20 years ago uh, that is still out earning them by a multiple of four to five. Times. I'm going to try and put that into perspective for, for Neil and our Irish listeners. I mean, this is like, I don't know who retired 20 years ago. This is like Roy Gary, Gary, well, Roy Keane, Gary Kelly, like <laughs> still <Yeah>. earning <laughs> 150 million a year. Like it's just phenomenal. Have you seen winning time about the LA Lakers? So I have, yeah. Magic. So Magic Johnson was courted by Nike and decided to go against the the advice. And he went. I can't remember who he went with. Maybe it was Converse, was it, Joe? But yeah, they reckon he'd lost out on something like because he was offered shares. I don't have the figures to hand, but I think it was five billion dollars or something. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was five billion. There's some uh, argument whether that's completely true or not. I, th- I think it's uh, probably directionally correct. I don't know what the dollar amount would be, uh, mm. but he was certainly supposedly offered stock. And uh, I think the thing that's up for debate is really how much he was offered. Even if it was only 1 billion, it's enough yeah. to wake <laughs> up in the middle and I go, Christ. <laughs> and yeah. you mentioned a few other basketball players there. I mean, there are amazing stories of, I mean, these guys get so wealthy from their sports you know, salaries, but then also their endorsements, but they don't sit still, do they? I mean, like there's so many opportunities for them to kind of invest well, capitalize, and then create other things. I know LeBron James is someone who is probably, I mean, he isn't probably, he's the biggest sports star, uh, certainly the biggest basketball star in, in the US and the NBA at the moment. But you you reckon he's on a trajectory to somewhere that isn't necessarily just going to see him be in Space Jam 3 and, uh, and have his shoe deal beyond uh, his retirement. He's going to do something else. No, I think uh, he's been very clear that 
you know, he's hinted at it certainly, and even said it to some degree over the last decade that he eventually wanted to own an NBA team. Mm. And now he's come out and just flat out said, I want to own an NBA team in Las Vegas, right? So he, he's been very clear about kind of his intention to do that. And when you start to backtrack a little bit and you just kind of start at first principles and like, okay, how can he actually make this happen? It costs X amount of money. Uh, who can he bring in? How can he make this happen? I think it's actually pretty obvious. And I wrote a Twitter thread about this a few weeks ago and it was like, this is what I think is going to happen. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's going to happen, but it makes a lot of sense. Right. And the way I thought about it was like, he's a billionaire, right? Forbes recently said that he reached billionaire status. Uh, so even if he has a billion dollars in cash, it's not enough to buy an NBA team, right? right? Especially in Las Vegas, because for a team in Las Vegas, you either have to move a team or more likely you have to buy an expansion team, which by the time that they're going to do this, say it's five years from now or even 10 years from now, it's going to be $3 billion or more because you wow. basically have to buy in at whatever the average price is of an NBA team. Okay. So call it $3 billion. You need to bring in other partners. And I think that what he's been doing is setting this up for basically a decade. And why I think that is is uh, is a business deal that he did in 2011 with Fenway Sports Group. So for Ooh, those, Neil likes them. Neil is a massive oh, Liverpool supporter. So Liverpool. yeah, yeah, Liverpool. FSC. So so you guys know who they are, but the, the, those that don't know them, Fenway Sports Group is essentially a holding company for professional sports assets. Right? They own Liverpool. They own the Boston Red Sox. They own uh, the 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 field and the and the ballpark for both of those teams. They own a uh, Roush Fenway Racing. They own a bunch of kind of different sports assets around the world. Liverpool and Boston Red Sox are certainly their two most famous ones. So in 2011, they wanted to diversify their business a little bit. And LeBron was looking for marketing help, right? Someone who could go out globally and sign deals for him. And he could basically either, uh, traditionally how these work is they, they get cash commission, right? Or someone could buy the right to market you for a large upfront payment. But instead of doing that, instead of accepting cash or paying them a commission, he accepted a 2% stake in Liverpool, right? Mm. And at the time, that was valued at $6.5 million. Liverpool had just been bought by Fenway Sports Group. I, I don't know the exact number, but somewhere around $450 million, give or take. And he got a 2% stake. Uh, Fenway Sports Group gave him that in lieu of cash, right? So instead of giving him cash, he gave him 2%. And to someone like like LeBron, like $6.5 million, like that's not really, I know it sounds crazy, but it's not really a lot of money and certainly not for what he was offering FSG. So he must have had a game plan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so he gets the 2%, and that has obviously grown tremendously over the last decade. So anyone who uh, knows anything about Liverpool or just uh, kind of the business side of sports in general, uh, Liverpool went from like a $450 million valuation to I think they're worth $4.5 billion today, right? So <laughs> Yes, as a Manchester United fan, it pains me greatly, Joe, but this is actually financially accurate. Can yes. you say those numbers again, but slower, please, Joe? That would be <laughs> Don't great. You dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> Tell us all the things they've won since they took over. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll move on to Liverpool and we'll talk about LeBron's equity in the team. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, he was, uh, so it was worth 6.5. Now it's worth 90. Right. So tremendous increase, obviously. And and that would just be a great business deal regardless of everything else. But the interesting part about this, and I think a lot of people actually probably know that aspect of it. Like, you know, he got some equity in the team. It's increased tremendously. Even if they don't know the numbers, they know directionally he's done well from Liverpool. But the part that I don't think most people realized is that last year, Fenway Sports Group sold uh, just around 10% of their business and raised $750 million when they did it. And they did that with Redbird Capital. So Redbird Capital paid $750 million for about 10 or 11% of their business. And when that deal happened, there was an ancillary part of the deal uh, that didn't get talked about nearly as much, which was LeBron James and Maverick Carter were named partners at Fenway Sports Group. Now they're, so they're basically the highest level of partner. And they converted, LeBron converted his 2% stake in Liverpool, that was worth about $90 million, to a 1% stake in Fenway Sports Group, the parent company. So it was worth still, the same equity position, 2% in Liverpool versus 1% in FSG, was worth the same equity value, $90 million. But now he's a part owner of all the assets instead of just Liverpool. And he sets himself up for basically like a strategic relationship with Fenway Sports Group. And when Fenway Sports Group raised this money... They were very, very, very clear about what they wanted to do with it. They wanted to go acquire more sports assets, specifically in the NHL and the NBA. They, soon after, months later, acquired the Pittsburgh Penguins for like $900 million. And LeBron was wearing the Pittsburgh Penguins you know, shirt, everything, the whole deal. I'm a part owner of the team, all this stuff. But what does that leave? That leaves an NBA team now. And the NBA team 
they circled the wagons on the Minnesota Timberwolves who recently went up for sale. They eventually ended up backing out. And most people believe, and myself included, believe that the reason why they did that was because they're circling in on an expansion team in Las Vegas. Okay. And if you're LeBron James, who obviously has a tremendous amount of wealth, has a fantastic relationship with the NBA, who the NBA wants to own a team, right? Like yeah. that is good business for the yeah. NBA to have them do that. And then you have another group with Fenway Sports Group. Who would they? Who, who like? Who else could you pick better to be in charge than LeBron James of a new team? Right? Like, uh, so, maybe maybe strategically, there's someone who's better at X's and O's. I don't know, but for the face <laughs> of a franchise, like you literally couldn't pick anyone better. So they're obviously aligned on that also. And then the NBA, this is good business for all of them also. And I think when you look at the picture, it's very clear that. I don't know if he thought about this a decade ago. Hey, maybe we can do this. Maybe this will rise in value. Maybe we can parlay this into an ownership stake, and then maybe we can go buy a team. Like That's obviously hindsight 2020, but I think it's become very clear now that this is setting it up for within the next five or seven or eight years when the NBA finally does expand. Everyone expects Las Vegas to get a team along with Seattle, and if Las Vegas does get a team, my guess is that Fenway Sports Group buys the team, all right, is a, a large majority equity holder in it. And LeBron owns a large equity position, but is also the face of the franchise. So whether he's, you know, the controlling equity partner, maybe he runs the day to day, I don't know. Uh, but my guess is that he'll be involved in in some capacity. They should call it the Las Vegas LeBrons. I mean, it's a good name. It's a good name. I mean, I, like I know there a lot of them are, are animals, but I mean, you could argue, you know, he's a timber wolf, he's a bull, he's a whatever, you know, I think they could do it like that. Would, it just goes to show that like, that these guys are more than what they do on the pitch, more than, I mean, we have an example in uh, soccer is so huge here and Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi and Kylian Mbappe. Yes, they're incredible athletes in their sport and they're recognized and paid huge amounts of money for that. But the deals they do off the pitch dwarf what they get paid on the pitch. Um, I mean, R Ronaldo's earning capacity he could stop playing football. He could have stopped 10 years ago and he'd still be making the money he's making. But it's, a, it's a relatively recent thing because most of the time athletes haven't had this sort of power. They haven't had this sort of wealth and they were controlled by the men in the grey suits. It's only the last few years that they've mm. gotten their own, that it's gone from a salary, from a wage to a salary to meaningful wealth and they want to be part of the game. I think we've gone through a few traditions to that point, right? Where back in the day, it was really just uh, endorsements. You, you would get paid cash to go endorse a product and you had a relationship with the brand. And that was great. And to some extent, it still exists to a large degree. But then we moved in this area, which I would claim that we're, we're kind of uh, either at now or actually even leaving, which was getting equity in brands, right? Really using your name, image, likeness, your media, your uh, platform and your audience to get equity in platforms and then drive that growth and participate in the upside using leverage. I think that's been a huge uh, thing. But what I think we're moving into, and we've seen to some degree already, is these athletes now are realizing I have money. I have this audience. I have this platform. I can use leverage. Like, why don't I just start these companies, like team up with the best entrepreneurs in the world, start these companies myself, and then I can get all the upside, right? So if you look at Tom Brady, uh, he's got this company called Autograph, which is an NFT platform, right? And we can argue, uh, I'm sure everyone loves to argue about whether it's valuable or not. But the, the market has decided, uh, venture capital firms have decided the business is worth, I believe, like over $4 billion at this point. Wow. Uh, and he is a co-owner of the business, right? Because he found people to start with, or uh, you know, whether he went to them or they went to him, it doesn't really matter. He's a co-owner of the business. Uh, he's used his marketing, his platform, et cetera, to build up the business. And now there's a, there's a world where he can make more money off that single deal than he does in his entire NFL career. So you, you get to the stage now where uh, athletes have always had this, this platform and this audience and everything like that. They're just finding better vehicles to monetize it than they previously did. Mm. And I think we'll continue to see that over time as athletes uh, get smarter, but also work with people who are smarter in these instances and know uh, that athletes are the best marketing vehicles in the world. And if you can get one of them on your team like LeBron James, your chances of success and, and not running out of money, quite frankly, is, uh, is, is meaningfully higher. Yeah, you see it as well in football where – uh, footballers now there's a tradition of running their contracts down so before like the idea was you kept getting a new contract and when you were sold from one from Manchester United to Juventus or from Liverpool to Bar Barcelona whatever it was if you were in the middle of your contract that was your peak value but it was peak value to whom it was peak value to the club so if Man United sold a player to Juventus for 100 million they got the 100 million and the player didn't get anything now the players run their contracts to zero there's no time left on it they're free agents and they say to the clubs okay you know 
I'll do a deal with you now where in a year's time or two years time, my contract is worth nothing. I'll come to you for free. Instead of paying a hundred million to the club that I'm going to buy me from, give me 20 and then I'm happy. Higher wages, yeah. Give me my, give me much bigger wages, whatever. And then by the way, my agent is my dad, my brother, my uncle. So you pay him 10 million. Like they, they figured it out. They're gaming the system to their advantage. And why not? You know, there's no reason not to do it that way. Yeah, I totally agree. You, right, you just have to consider who has the power in these situations. And in a lot of instances, it's the players. In some instances, uh, I would argue it's still the leagues or the teams, depending on kind of the sport or how the contracts work or the CBAs. But uh, in a lot of instances, it's the players and superstar players specifically uh, that have this value that can't be replicated. And like if you look at Tom Brady, there's an argument that an athlete like him could be paid tremendously more than they are currently. Uh, but the CBAs don't allow for it, right? So Tom Brady, uh, I don't have the numbers offhand, but when he first joined the Buccaneers, they basically went from like 30th or 32nd in the league from a merchandise sales perspective to number one, right? Overnight, literally at the end of the first year, they were number one in the NFL. And he was the number one selling jersey. He was the largest part of that. They increased season ticket prices by like 20 or 30% in one year. Uh, and, and the valuation for the team increased basically like all NFL teams increased that year, but they increased two times more than every other NFL team. Right. They won a Super Bowl. They do all these things, right? So you could argue uh, he wasn't, I mean, it's not, you, you can't argue this. He wasn't the highest paid player in the league. And if he was, he should have been making two to three times what he actually was. So a player like that, like they have all the power, right? These teams know the financial reward that they're getting for these players being on their team. And in some instances, like they have to kind of bend the knee to these athletes and realize that it's better to keep them along and keep them happy than it is to make them unhappy and potentially lose them yes we're looking at the case in point with cristiano ronaldo right now at manchester united and neil is rubbing his hands in glee <laughs> i i hope that aging monolith stays there for as long as humanly possible where goals banging off him a lot of them but he can't the man wouldn't press olive oil uh joe I can't thank you enough for shedding light on this. I knew the Jordan story was going to be an intriguing one to everybody because while it's for a super fan like me, it's always interesting to talk about Jordan. But I think from a pure business point of view, it is phenomenal that a company as you know ubiquitous and as successful and as huge as Nike is, that it was five weeks away from you know a potentially very different future and Tinker Hatfield came in and saved the day. Yeah, it's an amazing story, and it's awesome to look back on. Uh, and, and Tinker has obviously become uh, synonymous with the the shoe industry, so it's awesome to see him kind of get some credit too for uh, the role that he had in actually building Nike. Thank you, Joe, and thank you, Tinker. <laughs> yes, and Joe, you have an uh, interesting mailing list that you put out when you, uh, you you send out lots of information to people. Can you tell us a little bit about that before you go? Yeah, I have a newsletter. It's called uh, Huddle Up, so you can check it out at readhuddleup.com. Uh, it's daily, Monday through Friday, completely free. And uh, I just send out an email with uh, some thoughts, basically. I pick a subject or a topic each day on sports business, and I write down kind of what's going on in the world and some thoughts on it. It's uh, usually a five-minute read, guaranteed to learn something, and completely free. I think for the next season, we're going to get Joe to talk about the UFC because the money that was made in that is very, very entertaining, Dave. Or F1 as well, isn't there? Like, there's huge interest. In, I could talk in... about both of those. I think uh, uh, they're fascinating. Yeah, we'll definitely get you back in the next season, Joe. Yeah. Thanks a million for talking to us today, Joe. Thanks, guys. Okay, welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? After we spoke to Joe Pompliano all about Michael Jordan, Tinker Hatfield, and actually quite a bit of time on LeBron James as well, which I think, Neil, I, I really brought up because I knew you'd be so interested in the Liverpool side of things. I'm just very excited to see maybe, say, five, maybe ten years, LeBron buys the Las Vegas franchise and signs James Milner as a point guard <laughs> who's still playing at the age of 42. And is indestructible. I thought that would be amazing. Jordan Henderson is getting rebounds like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> There's only five foot eleven uh, basketball so player true. in the league. It's um, so true. That was fascinating. I didn't know about LeBron James. I love those stories where something is at the brink and then somebody saves it at the last minute. So 
Yeah, you know me. Every season, I'm going to try and get a basketball sneaker story in there somewhere. But like, yeah, I'm going to try and keep it interesting and not just make it, you know, about my favorite sneakers. I would suggest that wasn't a sneaker story. That was a business story. So I think you're okay. That, however, does not mean that you can get another sneaker story <laughs> in this season. No, not this season for sure. Maximum. For sure. For sure. Uh, okay, you are going to, however, bring us something next week. So tell us what it is. Well, next week, we are going to talk about a pacifist culture, a culture that had peace encoded in their laws until tragedy befell them. All right. Thanks very much for listening to Why Would You Tell Me That? Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, do all those things so you stay abreast of all of the episodes we have coming your way. And we're also on Instagram at Why Would You Tell Me That? You'll find Neil at Neil Delamere Comedy and you'll find me at Dave.fm. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.